Okay, in case you hadn't noticed, by now, everybody's getting pretty ticked off. Um, both Job and his friends are, are getting more and more aggressive. Um, they're calling each other names, and they're making blanket accusations against each other. Um, and, and in the last chapters, Job told them that they're you know miserable counselors and full of hot air. Uh, he also made it clear that you know he wasn't about to place his hopes in in any man because they were all out for themselves. His only hope is in God. Uh, his only hope is that uh, a mediator in heaven will take up his righteous case and and reconcile him to God. That was Job's cry. So now in in uh, chapter eighteen, um, Bildad is going to he's going to have a go at Job again. Uh, but this time, he's going to openly condemn Job. Uh, they are um, they're through beating around the bush with Job and Job's aggressive stance against them. You know, it's really making them angry. And so, in their minds, Job is Job is um, he's rejecting everything that they know is true. He's saying that suffering can come uh, on anyone at any time, and and they know that that's you know they believe they know that that's not true. They refuse to believe that it's the world is that way because you know in essence that it would cause them to lose control of their lives and it would be totally in God's sovereign hands. You know, oh, we can't have that, and that's something they won't give up. They uh, they're going to get downright mean with anyone that that challenges that. Um, we love to feel like we have some measure of control about what happens to us. We, you know, it, for for instance, if I, um, you know, if I if I eat right and exercise, I am assured that I will never get you know whatever disease, heart disease. And so, you know, you probably have a better chance of it since you know we know what causes heart disease and all that. But the the reality is that. Uh, that God is in control of all things, and Job knows this inherently because he is suffering, although he has done nothing that he knows of that has been uh, he, he's done nothing that uh, that has not been covered by the promise of God in the in the faithful sacrifices he's offered he He doesn't understand how those sacrifices and and faith and devotion you know, have uh, have have failed him. You know, he, of course they haven't failed him, but that's what his friends are basically saying. He's saying there's something wicked in you that uh, God is punishing and, and all that kind of thing. And it has to be that way. And if it's not that way, uh, Bildad and, and Eliphaz and Zophar, they, they lose control of, of their worldview. They they really understand that they are at they are not in control of the things that happen to them. They have no say so. Uh, and so um, that's a scary place for them to be, but but it's a it's a it's a tough place for Job to be because he's understanding this uh, maybe for the first time, but he's understanding that uh, that it's true that uh, you know that uh, suffering comes to us all and in, in different ways and different forms, and only God's in control of that. And Job is still he doesn't have it all figured out yet. He's still working through it. But as we progress in the book, you'll see. All this fleshed out, and uh, God shows up at the end to uh, to make sure that Job understands that he is the one that's in control, and he's the one that has the right to be in control. So what we're going to see as we start through these chapters is maybe 
eight or ten more chapters of the the friends and Job talking back and forth, and then we'll move to a different deal. But you uh, you start to see repetition going on. They start to you, you, they're trying to convince Job of this reality, and Job is rebutting that reality with every turn. So you kind of see the same things playing over and over again. And so uh, before Bildad starts, you know railing on Job, he's basically going to try to convince Job of the same thing that they've been talking about, that God punishes the wicked in this life, and that he will not allow the righteous to undergo the kind of punishment that Job is undergoing. Uh, This is what they're thinking. This is not the reality. And so he's trying to convince him of that. So, but you know, before he starts giving a go at Job, he he wants to he wants him to think about you know what he's saying. He wants Job to stop and just listen to what he's saying. In Bildad's view, Job isn't making any sense. He can't really believe what he's saying. What kind of man would believe the things? That Job is saying, I mean, surely Job is just blowing smoke. And verses 1 and 2 say, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. As far as he's concerned, Job is just babbling nonsense. Job just needs to stop and think about the ramifications of what he's saying. Uh, he, he, He needs to consider it. For a little while, and then he and Bildad can speak rationally, but Job isn't making any sense right now. Remember that Bildad doesn't believe God allows good people to suffer and, and doesn't believe God allows wicked people to prosper. So if, if Job's assertions are true, and he asserts that he is innocent and yet still suffering, then the world is unjust and unpredictable. We've seen that before. God is just a moral monster, if that's true, in Bildad's view. This is, you know, this is what he thinks. If Job would just think about what he's saying, uh, he would see the impossibility of the worldview that he's espousing. Of, uh, of course, Job may not be thinking perfectly clear, but we know that in essence, he is right. He is innocent of what his friends are claiming, and yet he's still suffering. Next, Bill Dead's, uh he simply questions Job's accusations over over the past few chapters, Job has made some pretty aggressive statements to his friends, and and here Bildad is going to just challenge him on it. He says, "Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight?" Remember, chapter seven. I mean, chapter twelve, verse seven. Uh, Job was rebuking them for their lack of wisdom, and he said, "Ask the beast, and they will tell you." Uh, here, Bildad wants Job to explain himself. Why do you, why do you think we're stupid like cattle? Uh, we hold a worldview that many generations have passed down to us. Our wise fathers all believed like we do. Good people get good things, and bad people get bad things. It's just common sense. Why in the world do you come along and think you have the answers, and and we're the ones that are stupid? You know, it's basically. Uh, the law of 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 karma, and you know, if you went up to the average Christian and asked them, you know, do you believe in the law of karma as far as uh, works and things like that, they would say they would say yes. Now God has set up, you know, generalizations. He set up, you know, in the proverbs, the proverbs are not promises for you to claim, but they are. Um, guidelines the way to live you know live a long life you do this you you have good things done to you you do you know do good things to others Um, but uh, the the law of karma is not an overarching principle that governs the the things of this life it's not it's not an overarching thing that says 
you know, if you do good, good must come to you. You know, if you do, if you do evil, evil must come to you. Um, not in this life. Now, we're not talking about the life to come when God renders judgment and justice and all those things. But in this life, we live in a fallen world. And you look around and you know what? Sometimes you see the wicked, they're doing pretty good. Uh, and sometimes you see the righteous, they suffer. I mean, think in the first century, all the Christians who who were martyred for their faith, uh, rather than you know receiving blessing and honor and riches and wealth and all those things, they received you know death at the hands of lions, at the hands of soldiers. And so, following their Lord, they they were they were martyred and killed. Of course, Jesus wasn't martyred; he was you know willingly a substitute. But anyway, that's beside the point. Bildad is going to assert that uh, it's Job who doesn't understand how things are. He he's going to ridicule Job's worldview and try to show him that um, that that he's the one that's being stupid. Verse four says, "You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place?" Job has openly asserted that he is suffering, even though he has done nothing wrong. And God is punishing him for no reason. But Bildad wants to make sure Job knows that the world doesn't work that way. That God doesn't work that way. According to Bildad's worldview, if Job claims, if Job's claims are right, then the world is unjust and God is unjust. Job is claiming God has destroyed him unjustly. But Bildad accuses Job of tearing himself rather than God tearing at him, as Job said he was doing in chapter 16, verse 9, uh, when he said, God has torn me in his wrath. Here Bildad is saying, you have torn yourself. Uh, he's saying, you've done all this to yourself. You brought it on yourself with your wickedness. He also, excuse me, <coughs> he also asked Job if the earth should be forsaken, you know, just for you. He wants to know if, Job is asking that the world be turned upside down so so you can be proven right. Uh, Bildad asked Job, is the rock, speaking of, you know, not, not a pebble that you hold in your hand, but a, a large boulder or a mountain can be removed just for you? Uh, he, he's implying that the world is the way it is, and Job is trying to convince him that it's not. Job is saying he's innocent and suffering while the wicked are prospering. Bildad refuses this worldview and accuses Job of selfishness. And stupidity. Now, all of this, you know, it seems like we keep running through the same themes in each chapter. We it seems like we keep running through the same, you know, the same arguments, the same uh, proofs, the same worldviews clashing each other. And basically, we are really because Job's friends are trying to convince him of their particular worldview about suffering, and Job is rejecting their con particular worldview about suffering and he is telling them the the truth of his case and so we are we are running through the same themes and the same lines it seems like from different angles with each speech uh, but it all boils down to in application what we do when we go through suffering or what we do when we help someone else Who's going through suffering? We realize that the the helpful comforter and counselor is the one that comes and empathizes uh, and suffers with uh, the person. It's the one that comes and he bears the burden with 
the other. It's not just the one who comes and says, straighten up and fly right, because we don't know the circumstances. At this point in the book, none of the friends know. Job doesn't know. Uh, no one knows that's not in the heavenly court why Job is going through this. And so what their first tact is to come by and say, you know what, you deserve it. You're, you know, you've... Um, you know, done, must have done X, Y, and Z. And Job saying, no, 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 I'm trusting in the sacrifices to cover those sins. I don't know why God is doing this. And, and rather than, rather than Job standing firm in, in, uh, his trust in God that he had right at the beginning, as the suffering goes on and on and on and on and on, now he starts to question but he rejects flat out what the friends are saying. And so he, he doesn't fully understand what's going on himself, but he knows that he refuses to believe that uh, God has dishonored his word by saying, you know, well, I'm not going to count those sacrifices or your faith anymore. He refuses that. So the, the application is simple for many of the different sections in Job is that when we go through suffering, um, we are we are, we hold our trust in God. We hold our trust in the sacrifice of Christ. That uh, as Christians, His blood covers our sin. God may be doing all kinds of things in our lives. He may be you know suffering uh, brings patience, and and patience brings endurance. And the Bible says to let patience have her perfect work. And you know so he may be growing us in all kinds of ways teaching us in all kinds of ways even disciplining us in all kinds of ways but that does not nullify the sacrifice of Christ and that's what his friends it would be like if you're going through some terrible suffering in your life maybe your family's uh had tragedy and sicknesses come on your life <clears throat> and someone came up to you and said the reason that you're going through this is because God God has not found you right before him. You are wretched and sinful and God commands that you um, do X, Y, and Z in order to be right before him. As a believer, you would agree and say, yes, I am wretched and sinful and I know that God has found me um, not right before him, but God sent his son to cover those sins, to take away those sins, to atone for those sins as a substitution for me. And by, by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has found me, uh, because of what Jesus did, perfect in himself. Uh, and that's kind of what's going on here. You can see it a little better when we apply the, the death of and resurrection of Christ, is, it, is that Job just refuses to uh, to let go of uh, his faith in the sacrifice. Uh, so next, in, in chapter 18, going, getting back to there, uh, next, Bildad's going to explain his worldview in, in shocking detail. And we've, we've kind of seen this before with other, uh, other friends. I think it was Eliphaz. What he gives here is a perfect, another perfect description of hell. He asserts that the wicked will always suffer and Job is wrong in what he says. So Bildad gives the description of how the wicked suffer. You know, of course he's wrong in applying all this to Job. And he's wrong in assuming that the wicked will always be punished in this life. 
we know that there will come a day when the wicked will suffer in, in just the way Bildad is going to describe. Uh, that place is called hell, uh, but the wicked are not there yet. Uh, the ones living, anyway. We we need to remember that everything Bildad says here is is basically true. And it is a perfect description of what God's justice in, in its perfection will look like. Um, but what he describes doesn't always happen in this life. True justice will come, you know, though it may not come in this fallen world. So, Let's just take a look at how Bildad describes the realities of true justice. Uh, That's what we call hell. Verse 5 says, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. Hell is a place of pure darkness. And we see this from what Jesus tells us about outer darkness, where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The light of the wicked will completely be put out. The flame of his fire won't shine and all light is put out. Light is something we take for granted. Uh, Not many of us have ever experienced absolute darkness. There may have been a time or two in your life when you have, but even in the darkest places, our eyes you know, become accustomed, accommodated, and we're at least able to to make out some shapes and and, and do those things. But try to think about that moment when you first walk from the light into darkness before the eyes have a chance to adjust. I mean, it's a scary feeling when you can't see anything. I mean, absolutely nothing. You can't even see your hand uh, half an inch in front of your face. Um, and, And all this points to the fact that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, uh, John contrasts darkness and light over and over again. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness didn't understand it and, 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 and all those things. Well, uh, for Bildad here, the, the place of God's perfect justice is when that light is taken away and there is no more light, there is no more hope, there is no more restitution or redemption, there is no more, um, there is no more anything. Uh, and it's gone. There's no more opportunity. There's no more uh, chances. There's no more. There's no more common grace. There's no more blessing of God. And and think about that for a moment. You know, we kind of take God's blessing for granted. Like today, you know, it's a little cold here, but the sun's shining. I mean, it's pretty outside. You know, and and, and you know, I'm able to have comfort. You know, just by sitting here. I'm able to have a glass of water to clear my throat. I'm, I mean, all these little bitty tiny things that we just take for granted all the time that just don't seem like nothing are actually blessings from God. He says he sends rain on the just and the unjust as well. Uh, but in the place of perfect justice, there won't be any of these blessings. There won't be any light. There won't be any blessing of God. A lot of people love to say, I thank God because he woke me up this morning. You know, I thank God because, you know, he allowed me to uh, get out of bed and do my... Think about the place where there is no more blessing. There is no more of the little bitty things. God's not just a watchmaker that sets you and wound you up and sets you in motion. He is intimately involved. Uh, Colossians says he's holding us holding the earth, uh, the creation by the power of his hands, upholding it by the power of his hands, when that's gone from you, there will be no more blessing. There will be no more common grace. There will be no more reigning on the just and the unjust. Um, In hell, when perfect justice is realized, the light of God will be completely removed from the wicked. 
They'll no longer experience the warmth or the peace of God's light. And there, I mean, there will be nothing good there to experience. Nothing good. Not just the, you think good, you think the wonderful things, but even the little things. You know, a a glass of water when you're thirsty is good. You know, uh, walking in from the cold into the warmth of the house is good. There'll be nothing good there. In addition to this, darkness, hell is inescapable. Verse 7 says, His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down, for he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. The end of the wicked will be punished for their own works, but the point Bildad's making here is that their own schemes are what throw them down into God's justice. Bildad is describing perfect justice. Every sinner's sin will be paid for in full. No one will escape justice. But we know that Bildad's misapplying it. I mean, we know you got to keep that in mind that this truth is not is not rightly applied to Job, but it is true. There will come a day, but that day is not today, not at this moment anyway. You know, it could be in the next moment, it could be, but not this moment. There awaits a day of justice for all the wicked in God's sight, but that day may not necessarily be in your lifetime. Um, sometimes the wicked prosper, and, and Bildad just refuses to accept any other, any other view. There will be no way out. He's cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on his on its mesh. He's caught. Uh, Bildad continues the thought when he says, A trap, in verse 9, a trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Um, hell is, it'll be a place of unending terror. I don't know how, I don't know about you, but, you know, this is the most disturbing thing about God's justice in hell. You know that feeling of foreboding fear when someone jumps out and surprises you? When you think you're in mortal danger, you know, like if you walk around a corner and somebody jumps out and surprises you and that that initial feeling that you have right then, that that shock and terror, you know, and then it goes away and you laugh or you punch them in the face or whatever. But that feeling is awful. And but, you know, it usually goes away in a few seconds when you realize it's just a prank in hell. That feeling of terror will never subside. It says a, a trap seizes him, a snare lays hold of him and he's caught. Uh, it'll last forever, and, and, and there's not, there's no ease from it. Not from eternity. He'll be, he'll be caught. It says to illustrate the terror, you know, that I'm talking about. Verse 11 says, "Terrors frighten him on every side, and, and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for him, for his stumbling. Uh, there'll never be a moment of, there'll never be a moment of rest. There'll only be unending fear and terror." Although the wicked may be strong and fearless in this life, in hell, there'll be no more strength in them. They'll be reduced to nothing but fear and weakness. Verse 13 says, It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusts and is brought to the king of terrors. This calamity of fear will consume him. The things he trusted for security and peace, things like his tent or his wealth, will be ripped from him. And everything that he loved or needed in this life will be replaced with terror. He will be utterly consumed and there will be no way to ease it or comfort him. 
I mean, I can't even imagine. I can't even begin to imagine what uh, what that would be like. Uh, continuing on, hell is, not only is it darkness, not only is it inescapable, not only is it uh, full of terrors that consume, um, not only is it a place where all the comforts of this world will be taken, all the things that we've put our faith in, all the things that we've trusted in for our joy and our happiness will be taken. Hell is also an unquenchable fire. And we see this picture given to us repeatedly in the New Testament. Jesus talks about the fires of hell over and over again. Uh, in verse 15 says, In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. Sulfur being fire. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. Uh, Bildad uses the figure of burning sulfur here to describe the torments of the wicked. Uh, this fire will be scattered over all his habitation and his life. Uh, you know, it's all this is represented by the figure of a tree. Uh, it, it will dry up and will wither because uh, of the burning that's going on. The things in his tent, you know, which symbolize the things of his life, <coughs> will be consumed by the fire. They're, they no longer belong to him. They belong to the fire. Bildad also describes hell as total separation. And we see that, that it's in the New Testament, that hell is separation from God. There will be locked outside where there's weeping of gnashing of, te of teeth. In verse 17 it says, His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness. He is driven out of the world. The wicked man's memory will perish from the earth. He will have no more reputation. Everything he has built will be forgotten and will pass into the hands of, the, of another. And in the same way, he'll be separated from all his loved ones. Verse 19 says, He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. The wicked have no one to continue his line. This is what Bildad is saying. He is separated from all his loved ones. He's separated from everything that he calls home. Uh, there will never again be comfort in him. He won't have the comfort of family, friends, comfort in his surroundings. Hell is the absence of any form of comfort and pleasure whatsoever. I know it's hard to imagine for us because we enjoy so many things. Uh, friends, family, simple pleasures, a sunset. Uh, there are many things in this life that we take for granted that are just simple pleasures. All of these will be gone when God's justice finally comes. Uh, there will be no more pleasure or comfort of any kind. Now, remember, Bildad is saying that these things uh, characterize life in this world, and we know that's not so. But what he's saying about God and his justice is true. It just is uh, reserved for, for, the next, for the next line. Finally, Bildad describes hell as a fearful place to be, but it is the destination of the wicked. They are, verse 20 says, they of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. All men are terrified at this truth. From the west to the east, everyone knows that this is the truth. Everyone knows that justice is real. Bildad's trying to convince Job that he's wrong, but even Job knows this fact. Everyone fears the day he will be sent to, to receive perfect justice, stand at the bar of God's judgment. They all know their day's coming. Bildad implies that the wicked know this to be true, and therefore, you know, they can't rest easy, as Job has asserted they most often do. Job said the wicked rest. Bildad is saying, no, 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 the wicked can't rest because they're so afraid of this coming, of this, this judgment coming. Now, 
Now listen, we know that that's not necessarily true. I mean, we know that uh, you know and I know people that are lost and in their lost condition and could care less about what you think is coming after this life. You know, there are people who are suppressing the knowledge of God. They are they are are, are pushing those things down. They're choosing their own sin over uh, what God would have. So it's not uh, you know it's it's not necessarily true that the wicked. Job has said the wicked have rest in this life. And he's using that to show the friends that they're wrong. Well, Bildad's saying, well, no, the wicked can't have rest because they fear the day, you know, that justice comes. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, just not, you know, I, I, I see contradiction. Uh, when I look around, I see lots of people that really don't care that a judgment is coming. And we know from, from New Testament passages, we know that the, the realization of that, the, the true, uh, fear and awe, the true repentance and faith, that comes because the Spirit of God has um, regenerated our hearts. It's come, it comes uh, as, you know, like when Peter said that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus said, you know, flesh and blood hadn't revealed that to you, uh, but the Father has revealed it to you. And so we know that, that the, the understanding of these things doesn't come just by learning. It comes by the Spirit of God. So Bildad finishes his speech by saying, verse 21, Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of who, him who knows not God. So we've seen the place of justice is darkness. It's inescapable. It's uh, unquenchable fire. It's uh, removal, separation from all all the blessings of God. You know, he has perfectly described to us what the 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 place that new the New Testament calls hell, the perfect justice where justice is meted out, where judgment is meted out, the place of perfect justice. But he's trying to convince Job that these things happen in this life, and we know that that's not so. He's trying to convince Job that by his works. He can be right before God, or he can be forsaken for God by, by God um, by his works, rather than based on the sacrifices that he's offered. And you can see the implications for believers, you know, all through that. And, you know, this is the fault in in Bildad's premise. He assumes that the wicked experience all this in his life. In this life, he assumes that the wicked are those who are presently suffering everywhere, or everything that he's described. And because of this, he's applying all this to Job. He's showing Job that he is experiencing all this just like Bildad has been describing it. So he must be one of the wicked. Job's suffering proves he is a wicked man in Bildad's view. Now, Bildad is right when he asserts that hell is a place for those who do not know God or suffering and justice is a place for those who do not know God. But but he is wrong to think that all this happens right now. He's wrong to think that everyone we look and see suffering in is suffering because they're wicked before God. He's wrong to think that uh, suffering in and of itself is evidence of the person's evil standing before God. Uh, we live in a world of suffering, and eventually suffering will come to all. Um, the essence of Bildad's speech is true. There is perfect justice and a place of conscious eternal torment. Um, 
where the wicked will never escape. But but Bildad misapplies these truths again by assuming that Job is going through this right now. God has postponed perfect justice until the last time, the eschaton. Uh, uh, it is at death or at the end of history when mankind experiences the perfect justice of God for those that are outside of Christ. Even when man... When men suffer under the disciplinary action of God, under the disciplinary judgment of God, they are not receiving the full measure of justice their sin des- deserves. Even when they are, you know, reaping the consequences of the decisions they've made, they're not experiencing the full measure of the wrath and justice of God. They're still able to uh, to have blessings. They're still able to have comfort. They're still able to uh, have rest in certain things, you know, so it is all not taken away. So even though suffering will come uh, in this life, suffering, no suffering is the complete and full payment of God's wrath that is to come. Sin will be perfectly atoned for. Either Jesus has atoned for man's sin perfectly on the cross or the sinner himself will suffer for eternity for his sin.